fellow students, if we're going to pick up the parable, if you will, in 1 Samuel 4, if you'd turn there. 1 Samuel 4, let me give you kind of the context of what's going on. By the way, uh, congratulations to those of you who survived fatherhood. It's the hardest job in the world. It's probably the most, it's undoubtedly the most important, but it's the one that I feel the most incompetent at. Work is real easy compared to parenting. Amen? Dads or moms. Parenting is far more complicated, far more confusing. Uh, you never know really if you're on it or off it, you know? So, and anyway. But God knows and he gives us the wisdom what we need to do. So Samuel is the subject of our study. He was born at the end of the period of the Judges, kind of looking historically, about 1120-ish B.C. This is a very dark period in Israel's history. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, which is a very fancy way of saying it was moral anarchy, kind of like today, right? Everybody does what they want to do. So for 300 years, Israel's been in this cycle, this cycle of obedience and blessing and disobedience and discipline and obedience and blessing and disobedience and discipline. And they do this for 300 years. The disobedience had gotten so bad that God had almost stopped speaking to the nation. It says in the first part of Samuel that visions were rare. God almost stopped speaking. Even the priesthood was corrupted. But in God's perfect time, he arranged for Samuel to be born, used him as the prophet to communicate with Israel. So we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 4 today, and this introduces a national crisis for the nation of Israel. This is uh, a significant crisis in their national history. There are three characters in this scene in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. We have Israel, the nation. Her primary enemy is the Philistines on the west coast of Palestine. And, of course, the central character is God himself. So here's the key idea. God will always vindicate his sovereignty, whether in victory or defeat. God will always vindicate his sovereignty, whether in victory or defeat. And we're going to find out that God arranges for victory and God also arranges for defeat. And both of them are expressions of his grace. If you look at the map... Rob's going to put a map up and probably leave it here for a period of time to give you kind of an idea at this point in time. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines are literally means the sea people. The sea people. And they were originally from Crete and some of the, the islands in the Aegean Sea. They migrated uh, over to the, uh, Palestine, over to the west coast. And they are even mentioned as early as Genesis 21 with Abraham. So we know there have been Philistines in this neck of the woods for a period of time. But about 1200 B.C., there was a massive migration of Philistines into the west coast of the nation of Israel, down where the Gaza Strip now is at that point in time. And it's very, very rich coastal plain, good agricultural areas. So they moved in right next door to Israel on their western flank. During the book of Judges, especially during the period of Samson, you're going to hear about the Philistines as being the primary enemy of Israel. Always there at war. Always there at loggerheads. You have to understand that Israel only had bronze. Israel had not mastered iron. The, Philipp the Philistines had mastered iron. So it gave them a very distinct military advantage if you've got iron swords and spears and your opposition doesn't at that point in time. Interestingly enough, there's been a lot of excavations in Philistine cities, and they found a huge number of wineries and breweries in, in, the, in the ruins. So apparently they like their liquor, and apparently they could grow it as well. Now, if you look on the map, you're going to notice that Apec is really a border town. 
it doesn't show it on the map, but it's on the border right between Israel and Philistia. So you've got a cross point here and they're going to go to battle. Verse 2 tells us the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, and battles usually do, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Verse 3, <clears throat> when the people came back into camp, the elders, that's the leaders of Israel, said, this is a very interesting question, I'm sure you ask it all the time, why has God defeated us today before the Philistines, right? Why has God allowed X, Y, Z to happen in my life? You ever ask that question? You ever get an answer? Nope. Yeah, sometimes you get an answer and sometimes the Lord just says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of the Philistines. Now, this is going to be hard to hear, but this is critically important. Here's the principle. We often misdiagnose our problems and miss God's purpose. We want our problems solved. And God uses our problems, uses those problems like tools to shape us into his image. I want you to hang on to that thought and write it down. So Israel now experiences a major defeat. Israel is not a big country. If 4,000 U.S. soldiers died in one day in the Middle East, we would have a national calamity, catastrophe. I mean, it would be a huge issue. Israel is a fraction the size of the United States. And they lost 4,000 soldiers in one day. This is a national catastrophe. And the question is, how do they deal with defeat? Now, it's interesting that they correctly diagnose something. What do they say? Why has the Lord defeated us today? So they understand that the cause of their military defeat is who? God allowed that to happen. God allowed that to happen. Interesting. So if God is the source of the defeat, what would be the solution for the defeat? The Lord, right? You'd say, well, if God's the cause, then God's the solution. So maybe we should do what? Ask God what's going on. Maybe pray, etc. However, they don't seek God's solution to their military defeat. They engineer their own. And I'm going to be talking to us because we do this all the time, don't they? First of all, they misdiagnose the primary problem. What does, who does Israel think the problem is? They do? What are they talking about? They think the Phil if the Philistine army disappeared, would they have any problems? Not in their mind. They think the Philistine army is the problem. I mean, think about it. You lost 4,000 soldiers to, a, to an invading army. Who do you think the problem is? The invading army, right? The Philistines are not the problem. Israel's disobedience is the problem. It's not their relationship with the Philistines that's the problem. It's their relationship with the Lord's that's the problem. Here's what's hard to hear, and it's very true. The Philistine army is part of God's solution for Israel's spiritual problem. Now, I want you to jump with me because you have issues in your life. Some of the issues in our life comes from our own disobedience, right? Some issues in your life comes from because you're stupid, right? <laughs> Spiritually speaking, right? No, we don't listen. We want to do it our way. So some of them are our way. On the other hand, God allows and even arranges for problems in our life, and he wants to use them as tools to shape us. And you know something? We want God to throw away the tool. 
right? We say, God, I need you to fix this problem in my life and fix it now. And the Lord says, if I take this problem out of your life, what am I going to use to make you like me? How am I going to shape you in my image? And we go, well, God, don't you understand that my goal is comfort? And God says, if you're comfortable 24 by 7 the rest of your life, what kind of a person are you going to be? Yeah, probably lazier, right? I mean, right? That's what we'll do. We will become not like Jesus if everything is always working well. I'm sorry to say that, but that's really the truth. So this nation has been disobeying God for 300 years. And about every generation or two, God brings a foreign invader to discipline them, to bring them back to him, right? So Israel disobeys God, starts worshiping idols, starts sacrificing their infants on the altars, right, to Moloch, etc. God says, you've walked away, you're doing bad things, you're behaving poorly, I'm going to bring you back to me. How am I going to bring you back to me? Problems, invaders, troubles. You come back to the Lord when there's problems. So they do. They've been through this cycle now for 300 years. Now, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 28, God promised Israel victory over their enemies if, what? They obeyed. And he promised them defeat if they... Okay, you got the equation? Here's the equation. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings discipline. Repeat after me. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings discipline. One more time. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Do you believe that? Yes. Do your children believe it? Did you practice that? Will you practice it with your grandchildren? <laughs> Brad, now you're meddling. Now you're meddling. You're right. You come to this class, you get meddled with. Israel's been disciplined and they've been defeated. Maybe it's because they've been disobedient. You think that could be a possibility? Say yes. So Israel knew where to find God's solution. Now I want you to jump back with me to, the first, to, to 1 Samuel 3. Go back one chapter. Open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel 3. And I want you to go to verse 19. 1 Samuel 3.19. Israel knows right where to go to find God's solution to this military defeat. 1 Samuel 3.19, follow along. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. Verse 20, And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So if you're living in Israel and you've just experienced a disastrous defeat and you want to know what God has to say, who are you going to call? Samuel. You're not going to call Ghostbusters? You're going to call Samuel, right? He's been confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. He's speaking for God. All of his prophecies come true. It's obvious that God has empowered him. Do they call on Samuel? Why not? Say it out really loud. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They don't want God's solution. You know what they want? They want a military victory without God's blessing. They want 
material prosperity and peace without a relationship with God. They want a success and they want to keep sinning at the same time. Have you ever tried that equation? I want to sin, I want to do it my way, and I want to be successful at the same time. You ever tried that? I have done that. I have done that. Am I the only one in the room who's done that? Some of you did it this week. I know. Okay, I get Rosie's honest. Okay. See, here's the point. God will never bless our disobedience with success. God will never bless our disobedience with success. God says, confess your sins, stop walking away from me, turn around and start walking with me, do it my way, stop doing it your way. And we say, well, God, my way is a really good way. And God says, how's it working for you? And we say, well, I drove the bus off the bridge three times last week. That's why obedience beats disobedience every time. Now, Israel's solution is they want, they, they're, they're going to try and engineer a military victory without God. What they do is they take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. They are so out of touch with God that they think the Ark is a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot. They think the Ark itself has magic powers that will give them victory. Now, that's just superstition. It's just plain superstition. The Ark of the Covenant, by the way, is the most sacred item in Israel's religious religion, Israel's spiritual worship of Almighty God. Remember, it was a gold-covered box that contained the stone tablets that God had written the Ten Commandments on, right? It also held a pot of manna that uh, came out of the wilderness, reminded Israel of God's provision. Uh, when Israel was living in obedience, the Ark of the Covenant was the meeting place of God. He actually said, I will dwell between the cherubim. Remember the two angels that had their wings overspread and the high priest would sprinkle blood on the top of the Ark, right, symbolizing what Jesus was ultimately going to do in the future? It actually was the dwelling place of God. Without God's presence, it's just a box that holds relics. Without God's presence, there's nothing in the Ark. Now, Israel believed that if they controlled the ark, they controlled God. Kind of like God in the box, right? I got the box, I got God, right? Kenneth Chafin once said that having the paraphernalia of God and having God are not the same thing, right? We get very, very confused with this. Don't ever confuse Christian activities with actually having a relationship with Jesus, People attend church, people wear a cross, people go to Bible study, people vote for Christian candidates, they go to confession, they carry a rosary, they watch Christian TV, they read Christian books, they listen to Christian music, they hang with Christian people, they do all the activities. Does that make them a Christian? No. Not in the slightest. There are people in this church of ours that have been coming here for years that don't know Jesus. Guaranteed. They've not had a personal relationship. They're with God's people. They're attracted to Jesus, but they haven't made that personal commitment yet. And if you haven't, I'm going to ask you to do that because they'll change your life. If you haven't surrendered your life and your sin at the foot of the cross, then you don't know Jesus. See, some people recite three magic words. And all of us in this room are really good at these three magic words, baby. It's like abracadabra. You know what they are? In Jesus' name. How many of you end your prayers in Jesus' name? Right? Nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, pray according to my name. 
But many, many people treat that like a magic spell. That if only and the prayer and in Jesus' name, that means it's got to happen, right? Someone once said that God is not a cosmic pinata. And in Jesus' name isn't not the magic stick that whacks the pinata and all the goodies fall out of heaven. It's very easy to get into the superstition, into the activities, into the paraphernalia, into all the external stuff of Christian activity and not spend time alone with Jesus. Right? I don't care how many Bible studies you go to, I don't care how many choirs you sing, I don't care how many Sunday school classes you go to, you should be spending some time every day alone with your first love. Amen? Amen. Alone. Just you and Jesus. That's the relationship. That's all that matters. This other stuff is not, it's good, but it's not a substitute. So Israel's trying to engineer a victory their way, not God's way. Verse 4 tells you how. So the people sent to Shiloh, you can look on the map. Shiloh is where the ark is. And from where they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, it sits above the cherubim, and the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So the ark represents holy God. Who's carrying the ark? His two kids. What are they like? They're pig and fornicators, right? They're stealing the offering. If you heard last week, you should get it. If not, grab it on SoundCloud. They want God's help, but they don't want God's holiness, right? They want to use God, God in the box, to accomplish their purposes, but they don't want to submit themselves to God's purposes. And it's so easy for us to do that, right? What do we do when we pray? We say, oh God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and please give me, give me, give me, give me, and please give me, give me, give me, give me, and amen. Okay, where's the rubber stamp? I need some divine help here to accomplish whose plans? Well, my plans, of course. They're very good plans. God says, ask. You should ask. Don't be shy about asking. Don't br bring your request to the Lord. But at the end of the day, thy will be done. Amen? Thy will be done, like Jesus. So, as Dr. Phil says, how's it working for you? Let's let, you know, when you go down here and you say, well, how's it working for you? Jump down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. That means the whole place is dispersed. You couldn't find two soldiers together. And the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel how many? 30,000 foot soldiers. Now this is a national disaster. Verse 11 really hits it home, and it says, what was the worst thing that happened? And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now, if you just glance down from 12 to 16, it says that a messenger from the battlefield, which was Aphek and Ebenezer, ran back to Shiloh with the bad news, and Eli asks this messenger, how did things go, my son? Go to verse 17. Then the one who brought the news from the battle, right, told Eli, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. Verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backwards beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Here's the principle. 
you're not going to like this one. When God blesses disobedience with defeat and disaster, it's an act of love. So run to him and not away from him. See, our tendency is when God blesses disobedience with defeat and disaster, what's our tendency? We want to blame him, right? It's an act of love that he would not bless disobedience. Now, this is a whole series of losses. Think about it. 4,000 dead on day one of the battle. Day two of the battle, 30,000 dead. Day two of the battle, the ark captured. Hophni and Phinehas, dead. Eli dies. Phinehas's wife all die on the same day. Eli's sons were probably killed by the Philistines. Phinehas's wife dies in childbirth. Eli probably had a stroke or a heart attack, fell back, broke his neck, and died. He was very obese. He was 98 years old. This is the first time in Israel's history that the ark is not in their possession. The ark has been taken by a foreign invader. The first time. The center of Israel's spiritual life was the Ark of the Covenant because it was the point where Almighty God came down and met them. It was the contact point between God and man. Now, today, that's Jesus Christ since he came, but at that point in time, it was the Ark, and it was captured by who? It was captured by pagans. Now, why would God allow the holiest point of meeting between Israel to be captured by pagans? Yeah, was Israel doing a really good job of taking care of it to start with? There wasn't a dime's worth of difference between Israel at this point in time and the Philistines. They were both pagan. They were both wicked. They were both disobedient. The only difference is Israel knew better, right? So there are lots of lessons here. Israel's going to find out that God is, the ark of God is not magic, right? Israel's going to find out that God is sovereign and God will never let his children sin successfully. You can write that down. God will never let his children sin successfully. Some of you need to pray that God will not let your children sin successfully and your grandchildren sin successfully, which means when he brings discipline in their life, stop bailing them out. Let God deal with them, right? Does he love them more than you do? Yes, and he won't spoil them either. I'm being real direct here because I love you. When God wants to deal with his children, your children, your grandchildren, let God deal with them and pray for them because Jesus loves your children more than you do. He knows what they need. He knows what they need more than we do. You know, the Philistines are going to find out that you thought you had captured God in the box and that God can destroy you. You know, they fought like crazy to capture the ark and here by the end of this chapter, they can't wait to get rid of it. Let's jump over to verse five, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. If you look back at the map, you look, you, they traveled from uh, Aphek down to Ashdod, Ebenezer rather, to Ashdod. And they, the Philistine civilization really had five major cities. They had Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. So there were five cities there. These cities were really more or less autonomous, kind of like city-states. And each was ruled by its own lord, by its own uh, kinglet, I guess. But in times of war, all the Philistines got together, banded together for battle. 
So the Philistines now have three major gods, Ashtaroth, Baal, and the one we're going to meet right now, Dagon. Dagon was their chief god. Verse 2, chapter, chapter 4, 5, verse 1. 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon apparently was an idol that had the body of a fish and the head and hands of a man, kind of like a merman. You've heard of a mermaid? <laughs> One pastor called this a merman. I thought that was kind of cute. Dag for fish and then uh, uh, on and things like that. So it was kind of a combination of a, a fertility god of agriculture, grain, and fish at that point in time, which makes sense because these people are sea people. So they put this idol Dagon on a raised platform in his temple and put the ark of God below it and off to the side. So Dagon is in a superior position on the platform and the ark is supposed to be there to serve him. Back in the day, if you captured your enemy's gods, that was proof positive that your god was superior to their gods and that they were really, really completely captured because the strongest thing they had was their gods and if you captured their gods, you had conquered them at that point in time. So the Philistines believe that they are holding God hostage because they've got him in a box and they got the box, right? And the box is in their temple. And I'm sure they had a great celebration that day. Can you imagine the party the Philistines had when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into their temple? Verse 3. However, what a difference 12 hours can make. When the Ashdodites arose the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. You know, if this wasn't so sad, it would be hilarious. It would really be funny. You know, Dagon is where? prostrate, right, flat on his face before the God of Israel. Just like any good worshiper should be, right? Flat on your face, worshiping. So Dagon is worshiping Israel, and they can't quite explain this. You know, may I, you can hear him. I wonder if there was an earthquake. Did you really secure him solidly to the platform? Was there a strong breeze that tipped him over? I mean, what's going on here, right? So this real powerful God that they worship, they have to pick up, dust off, you know, uh, reposition him on the platform, and I'll bet you they really carefully positioned him on the platform so he wouldn't tip over for the next time, right? So this Dagon God can't take care of himself, let alone anybody else. When you, when, you, when you look at the idols of humanity and you look at God himself, you are struck by the contrast. Keep your finger there and turn to Isaiah 40 with me. Isaiah 40. Any of you are ever wondering about the kind of God you serve, the power of the God you serve, what he's like, Isaiah 40 is a really, really good place to be. And if you look at Isaiah 40, verse 18, I want you to follow along. This is a magnificent chapter. We're just going to focus on a few verses, kind of contrasting human objects of worship and the true God. Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the iPhone, I mean idol, I mean iPhone. A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. 
He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world? It is he, God, who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces presidential candidates to nothing, <laughs> and congresses, and dictators, and members of parliament, and mayors, who makes the Supreme Court of the earth meaningless. You get in the picture? We are so focused on human power, God says, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? You having trouble with perspective? Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. We have literally hundreds of billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. God says, I not only have them all numbered, I call them by name. Right? Does he know your name? He knows your name. He knows your DNA. He loves you. See, the real God, the God of the universe, created and rules his universe without any human assistance. He's never called me up and asked my advice. And I don't think he's called you up either, has he? He's called you up to say he loves you. He sent Jesus to prove that. But he doesn't need our help in running this universe. He's got the whole world where? In his hands. Now, Dagon doesn't have the whole world in his hands. Dagon's lost his hands and his head. Go back to 1 Samuel 5, verse 4. This is the next morning now. The first morning he falls down, worships. They pick him up, stand him up. Next morning, verse 4. But when they arose the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now this is pretty humiliating. Dagon's not only his face, he's dismembered and just decapitated. He's got no head for wisdom and he's got no hands for action. The poor guy's just falling apart, right? The, day, the, the Philistines have to take their God back to the shop for repairs, right? Get a paint job on him, right? Yeah, one of my favorite poems, at, well, I, I put down, this is a Humpty Dumpty God, you know? He had a great fall and now he needs some super glue, right? This is the kind of God people worship. What kind of a lame God needs to be repaired because you fall down and go boom, right? <laughs> Can you believe this? You would think, right? You would think that the Philistines, when they see their idol falling down in front of God and being decapitated and dismembered, the Philistines would figure out which God was greater. Is it, is it pretty clear? Yeah. Who, who, who's the greater God here? By the way, during this era, if you were a victorious army, you routinely collected the hands and the heads of your enemies. Routinely. You'd cut their hands off, you'd cut their heads off. That was a common practice in a battle. It was very much understandable to the Philistines that their god had been defeated and destroyed. His head and his hands were off. Right? The battle took place and God won that one at that point. Now the Philistines have a choice. Am I going to humble myself before God or am I not? Well, 
They don't humble themselves. They create a new, they create a new superstition. Verse 5 says, The priests of Dagon, nor all who enter Dagon's house, tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod till this day. Since they found his head and his hands on the threshold, now they kind of jump over the threshold every time they go in because they won't touch it. How many of you are told that you should never walk under a ladder leaning up against the wall? Yeah, yeah same thing. Kind of superstition, you know, we really can't do that at that point. Then. But they don't learn the spiritual lessons. So, since they haven't learned at low temperature, God's going to do what? Turn the heat up, verse 6. First of all, he laid hands on their chief God. Now he's going to lay hands on them personally. Verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and their territories. It's interesting, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 8, before the battle, when Israel brings the ark into the camp and the Israelites shout, the, 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 the Philistines are very frightened because they remember what God did to the Egyptians. In chapter 4, verse 8, they say, Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So before the battle, the, Egypt, the Philistines are pretty worried that this God is the God who visited the Egyptians with all these plagues, right? And they, 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 God visited Egypt with plagues because Egypt refused to let Israel go. Now the Philistines have captured God's ark and they refuse to let it go. What do you think is going to happen to them? Same thing, right? A plague, right? They get a plague. They get tumors. These are swellings or boils, new tissue growth. It's interesting, the old English says, in their secret parts. The English translate this hemorrhoids. It's probably not hemorrhoids. It's, it, no, seriously, it, it, there are some translations. This is very likely the bubonic plague. This, hemorrhoids are not terminal, at least they may feel like it, but they're not terminal. The bubonic plague is terminal. So it's a contagious disease. It spreads rapidly, killed a lot of people. It was apparently associated with mice and rats. And um, the fleas from the rats, of course, transmit the disease to humans, which causes fever and what they call buboes, those large, soft swellings. And they occur usually in the groin area and your armpit, soft tissue. Uh, without treatment... The mortality rate for the bubonic plague is between 60 and 90 percent. So it's not a disease you want, right? So it's fairly terminal at this point in time. It's interesting that Eli, when he found out that the ark of God was taken, he fell back in shock. He was worried that God was captured. You're going to find out that God has no problem taking care of his own furniture, right? Let alone the Philistines. Right? So the Philistines are now finding out that God is not God in the box. He's God of everything. Verse 7. When the man of Ashdod saw that this was so, they had all these plagues and stuff, the last half of verse 8 they say, let's take the ark of God over to Gath. Let's kind of get rid of this ark and bring it to one of our sister cities. Verse 9. And after they brought it around to Gath... The hand of the Lord was against the city of Gath with very great confusion, and he smote the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. See, the Philistines want to know, is this plague of bubonic plague a result of us having captured God's ark, or is this just random? It's just random, right? So if we send the ark to another city... We'll find out whether this is a random plague or whether or not the plague follows the ark. 
right? What happens? Well, it's pretty clear that the plague follows the ark. Gath, by the way, means wine press. And if you look at the map, Gath's about 12 miles south of Ashdod. So when they figure out that the plague follows the ark, the ark now becomes a hot potato. You want to get rid of this thing because you fought to capture it, you've got it, and now that you've got it, you don't want it. You ever done that? How many of you ever really asked God for something, really asked God for something, really asked God for something, and just beat on heaven's door and the Lord said, you got it. And a year later or two years later, you said, why did I ask for that? Right? Why did I ask for that? I don't want it. Be careful what you ask for. Ask, but ask for wisdom before you ask. I have come to the point in time where I'm not even sometimes sure what I should ask for. And when you don't know, you say, Lord, this is what I think I want. This is what I think I want. But you know what's best. Have you reached that point in time where you know what's best? Lord, you know what's best. All right. So verse 10, the Philistines are now getting paranoid because people are dying all over the place. So they send the Ark of God to Ekron. This is the third city they're going to visit it with. Does the, the people of Ekron, do they want the Ark of God? Verse 10 says, So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron, and it happened as the Ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Here's the principle. God will not cohabit with your sin. When you love Jesus, you will reject sin. And everyone makes that choice every day. See, those of us here who are Christians have already decided to follow Jesus. Period, end of story. He's Lord of our lives. But every single day, we need to resubmit our heart, resubmit our will, resubmit our day, resubmit our priorities to Him, right? Amen. You found out if you don't do that every day, bad things can happen. You can be taken off track. God will not cohabit with our sin. That's why your Christian bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9, is so important. When you sin, and we do, what do you do? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Do we need forgiveness every day? I mean, you don't, you don't, yeah, I think we do. Yeah, more than once a week, right? So God will not cohabit with our sin, and we have a choice. We're either going to hang on to Jesus or we're going to hang on to our sin, but you can't hang on to both because God's not going to cohabit with your sin. So the ark moves from Ashdod to Gath to Akron. It's interesting the words that are used to describe what happens. It seems like things are getting worse. When you read God's hand on Ashdod, it says God's hand was heavy on Ashdod. By the time the ark got to Ekron, it says God's hand was very heavy on Ekron. Have you ever noticed that when we don't get the message, God can turn up the heat in love? You ever had that happen? Where things don't improve when you continue to rebel? God loves us so much, 
He wants to correct us. He doesn't want us driving off the cliff. So he uses problems to keep us on track. Now, the Philistines are figuring out wherever the ark goes, the plagues follow. So this is not a coincidence. This is God's judgment. You know, at first, the Philistines are delighted they captured the ark. Now they're in terror that the God of the ark is going to kill them all. And they have a choice. They have a choice. They can either humble themselves before the Lord, align themselves with God's plan, or they can reject God and rebel against him. And of course, you know, that, you know what they did. They chose to rebel. They chose to reject God. They choose to hang on to their idol worship. You know what they want to do then? They want to make God do what? Go away. It says, let's send the ark of God out of the land. Right? We've got to get rid of this holy thing. Right? This holy thing is causing us sinful people trouble. Now, I can either let God deal with my sin, or I can try and get rid of God, right? I don't know if you've ever tried that. I spent a few years trying to do that. Waste of time. People have been trying to create Jesus-free zones for centuries. We have a culture right now that is committed to creating Jesus-free zones. They're committed. It's not going to work, because you cannot put God in the box, right? Ever. Interesting. One day, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum on the west to the city of the Gadarenes on the east, right? And he's got an appointment with a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. He goes from the east, Carolyn, you were there, to the west, or from west to the east. He runs into the demoniac, and this demoniac is terrorizing the whole community. I mean, no one dares to go outside at certain times, because this guy has got supernatural power. He's ripping stuff up. He lives in cemeteries or graveyards. He's naked, and he's cuts himself with rocks, and he's got the supernatural power. And Jesus heals him and restores him to his right mind. And remember, the demons say, send us into what? The pigs. And he sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run into the sea and are drowned. But the man is in his right mind. What do the people in the town do? You would think they would be grateful, right? I mean, Jesus healed this guy. The power of God's among us. They asked Jesus to leave town as soon as possible. We will buy you a bus ticket. Get on Greyhound. Get out of Dodge. Interesting. They did not want holiness in their town. They didn't want holiness in their town. They preferred to live with their sin. And people are no different today. Many, many people in our country want God available in emergencies, but in the meanwhile, don't get too close, right? Don't get too close, God, because I really like my sin. I really like to live my life my way. But by the way, if bad things happen, who am I going to hold responsible? I'm going to blame God for it. Even though God says, you make choices, you get consequences. You know, this past week in Orlando, our nation experienced a tragedy almost beyond words. It seems as though issues like this are increasing, not decreasing. It seems as though God is increasingly allowing us to experience the full consequences of our sinful choices. And just like the Philistines had a choice, we as a nation have a choice. We can turn to God in repentance, yeah, just like Lot, that's true. Or we can deny that God exists and we continue to trust in our human solutions. I'll give you an example. 
We really have no human solution to anybody who really wants to kill other people. Correct? We, don't, is it, we really don't have a human solution. We are tearing our hair out, getting gray hair, spending billions of dollars trying to figure out how to surveil everybody so we can spot who's going to do bad things to innocent people at a period of time. And you know something? It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't know everything about everybody all the time. Have you heard any political leader, any leader of any kind say, we need to get in their face and we need to pray to the God of the universe, the God of glory, and ask him for forgiveness? Has anybody said that? Yeah, okay, we've got a few. Any political leader are all talking about human governmental solutions. It's interesting, when 9-11 occurred, they asked, uh, I think it's Annie Graham Lott, right, Holly? Uh, how could God do this? How could God allow this? And she said, I think very wisely, she says, well, God's a gentleman. He doesn't force his will on anyone. He lets you choose. And then you experience the consequences of your choices. And this nation has thrown God out of its public square for decades. We can't pray to him. We can't post Ten Commandments because people might actually obey them. God forbid, thou shalt not steal. You can't tell people not to steal or commit adultery or lie, right? But God says, you choose. But if you choose, there's always consequences. You heard Pastor Rogers this morning's sermon on, on fatherhood and decisions. We as a nation are going to have to decide. But the issue is not the nation. The issue is God's people. God has a solution. It's called 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, if my people, who's my people? That's us. My people, my people who are called by my name. That's Christians, you're called by your name. If we will do four things, humble ourselves and pray and seek my face and, here comes the kicker, turn from our wicked ways. He didn't say, if the culture just straightens out and flies right. He says, my people. The key to revival in this nation is not the world. It's us. It's my people. Humble themselves means stop trusting in yourself. And pray, which means stop listening to somebody else, start listening to God, right? Turn, you know, seek my face. That's kind of, that's more of a, of, a, of a love. You seek the face of your spouse because you love them. Seek God's face and turn from your wicked ways. Which means it's not the sins of the culture that are bringing down judgment. It's the sins of the body. I don't even like to hear this. I can't believe I'm saying this. But it's God's word, so it's, I'm telling you because that's what it says. It's not the culture that's got the problem. It's the church that's got the problem. I'm not saying the culture's fine, the culture's lost, but the culture has no power to do anything. The church has the power, we have the Holy Spirit. Then God says, I'll do three things. I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive your sin, and I'll heal your land. Does this land need healing? It's broken. It's getting brokener and brokener by the day. And we say, well, God doesn't exist, God doesn't care, or there is no God. You can say whatever you want to say. The reality is we are experiencing the consequences of our choices. We say, well, I don't like those consequences. Well, then make different choices, right? You ever told your children that? 
If you don't like the consequence, go upstream and make different choices, right? It's us in the church. It's us that know Jesus. We're the ones that need to be repenting and ask God to guide our thinking so we make choices that honor him. See, both the Israelites and the Philistines thought that they could control God. If I possess the ark, I can get God to do what I want him to do. God arranged for Israel to lose. God arranged for the Philistines to win the battle. God arranged for the Philistines to be judged by the holiness of God. And both nations were disobedient at the time. Now you're going to find out in a couple chapters that Israel's going to repent in chapter 7. But if God had let them succeed in this battle when they were disobedient, would they have repented? Have you found that most of us come to repentance only when the pain point gets very high? So when God allows you to experience pain, that's an act of mercy. He wants us to repent. He wants us to come back. He wants, us to, he wants to make us like him. He wants to love us. That's what he wants to do. So God will always vindicate his glory and he will arrange victory and he will arrange defeat in order to accomplish his purpose. Let's summarize. Tom, you could probably get ready for the uh, prayer time. Here's the summary. God will always vindicate his sovereignty. I had originally put holiness there. Sovereignty is lordship. It's mastery. It's rulership. This is his universe, and he runs it. And amazingly enough, he sent Jesus to express his love for us. This is something that just takes my breath away. The God of glory, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the holy God loves us enough to die on our behalf. Amazing grace. We often misdiagnose our problems and miss God's purpose. We just want the problem solved, and God uses problems as tools to shape us into his image. So don't ask God to throw his tools away because he won't do it. When God blesses disobedience with defeat and disaster, it's an act of love. Run to God. Run to God. He's a loving God. Don't run away from him. And lastly, God will no, not cohabit with sin. When you love Jesus, you will reject sin. By the way, if you love your sin, you'll reject Jesus. Right? You, can't, you have to make that choice. Everyone chooses that every day. Okay, so far so good? Do you have enough to work on this week? That's what counts. Now that you know, do. do. Love you guys so much. Next week, be here. Read ahead.